Hey there, folks. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Whitfield Report. I am your host, Sam Whitfield, uh, here. So, I usually do pre-recorded podcast episodes on Thursdays, but for today, I thought it would be best if uh, I did this show on Wednesday. And this is my third attempt after recording this podcast, because... Uh, GarageBand, for whatever reason, does not want to work properly. Uh, it'll record and whatnot, but it'll like add echoes and all sorts of effects that uh, I don't really want, you know, in, in my podcast. So uh, you know, it's bizarre, but we're uh, you know we've got things running. So I'm just using the standard uh, voice memos app on my. Uh, computer, so we're good. Anyway, uh, two things I want to talk about today. If you're listening to this on Wednesday, obviously by now you've heard the news that uh, Kamala Harris is Joe Biden's running mate for the uh, 2020 Biden-Harris ticket, I guess. We can, you know, make that official now, I guess. So I want to talk a little bit about that, kind of give my thoughts on that. And then I also want to respond to uh, something that my friend Ray, who hosts Eye on the Empire, that podcast, I want to respond to some of his comments from his show on Monday about coronavirus because he made some really good points um, and whatnot. But anyway, I want to uh, begin with this Fox News article on uh, Kamala Harris. So this was published uh, yesterday, right after uh, Harris was announced as Biden's running mate. So headline from Fox News, uh, Kamala Harris chosen as Biden's running mate. What to know? Uh, Sub-headline. Harris served 25 years as a prosecutor in California and six as the, as the state's top cop. And let's get this into reader mode real quick. Alright. Who is Kamala Harris? California's Senator Kamala Harris has been announced as Joe Biden's vice presidential pick. Here's what you need to know about her. After must after much anticipation, Joe Biden announced Tuesday that his vice presidential pick would be Kamala Harris, the senator from California, and his former opponent in the presidential primary. Harris, a former prosecutor whose most high-profile moment on the presidential campaign trail came during a summer debate where she dissected Biden on his past stances on busing students to desegregate schools may have the take no prisoners attitude needed to swear needed to square up against the Trump Pence ticket. Here are five things to know about Biden's running mate and the potential first female vice president. Number one, Harris would be the first black and first female vice president. The daughter of an Indian mother and a Jamaican father, Harris checks the box for those who pressured Biden to pick a black female running mate in light of racial injustice across the country. 
Paris's race played out in one of her most memorable debate moments. She challenged Joe Biden's opposition to federally mandated busing when he was in the Senate, telling him she benefited from the program to integrate schools. Quote, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools, and she was bused to school every day. That little girl was me, Harris said. Okay, number two on the list. Harris served as California's top cop. Harris served 25 years as a prosecutor in California. After spending her childhood in Oakland, California, Harris attended historically black college Howard University before attending law school at at UC Hastings. After law school, Harris served eight years in Alameda County District Attorney's Office where she prosecuted child sexual assault cases. She served as San Francisco's District Attorney from 2004 to 2011 and California's Attorney General from 2011 to 2017. So she went from being the San Francisco AG to, to AG for the whole state. Harris's record as top cop could backfire among, amid a renewed focus on police brutality. Biden himself has attacked Harris's record as a prosecutor. In a debate last August, Biden accused the California senator of keeping nonviolent prisoners behind bars during her tenure as California Attorney General because they were a source of cheap labor for the state. Quote, What happened? Along came a federal judge and said enough is enough and he freed 1,000 of these people, Biden said, as he argued that Harris was forced by a judge to release the prisoners. In the same debate, Representative Tulsi Gabbard slammed Harris's record on marijuana violations. Quote, she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and laughed about it when asked if she had ever smoked marijuana. The congressman argued the figure apparently comes from a Washington Free Beacon article from back in February. As Gabbard indicated, Harris has softened towards the issue since. Harris said in an interview earlier this year that she smoked marijuana as a college student, laughing at the memory. Which, in my opinion, folks, is kind of a, a, you know, a moot point since, you know, most college students, you know, me included admittedly, have smoked marijuana, you know, once or twice. Uh, Gabbard also charged that Harris, quote, in the case of those who are on death row, innocent people, you block evidence from being revealed that would have freed them until until you were forced to do so. End quote. The congressman from Hawaii was likely pointing to the murder case of Kevin Cooper, who was convicted in 1983 of a, of a quadruple homicide. The death row inmate came close to execution in 2004, when Harris as Attorney General denied Cooper's request for newly advanced DNA testing. In February of this year, newly elected California Governor Gavin Newsom ordered new DNA testing.
Number three on this list, hints were dropped that Harris could be the VP pick. Uh, okay. After Harris dropped out of the race and endorsed Biden's campaign, Biden indicated that he wanted to have her as a heavy hand in his campaign. Quote, I'm so lucky to have you be a part of this partnership going forward. Working together, we can make a great deal of progress. I'm coming for you, kid, Biden said. In April, Harris formed a joint fundraising committee with the DNC, meaning that the groups could raise money together with a maximum of $2,800 per contributor, going to pay off Harris's presidential campaign debts in $357,000 going to the Democratic Party. This peculiar arrangement is typically reserved for the party's presidential nominees and could indicate that Biden and the Democrat Party are seriously considering Harris as a viable VP contender. And at the very least, shows that the National Party looks favorably upon the California Senator and wants her to play a major role in its 2020 strategy. Okay, number four on this list. As Biden pointed out, Harris touts her tough on Banks records. Quote, back when Kamala was Attorney General, she worked closely with Bo. I watched as they took on the big banks, lifted up the working people, and protected women and kids from abuse. I was proud then, and I'm proud now to have her as my partner in this campaign, Biden said in announcing his running mate. Harris often promotes her record on taking banks to task during the financial crisis, forcing big banks to make amends to customers hurt during the financial crisis. Quote, during the 2008... Okay, yeah, never mind. During the 2008 financial crisis, a group of attorneys, general officials from... Housing and Urban Development and Justice Departments and others sought to address revelations that the top banks had rushed through a flood of foreclosures as mortgage defaults skyrocketed. Harris pulled her state out of national negotiations, pursuing the monetary settlement from major banks, believing she could do better for her state. Harris later reached a $25 billion settlement from J.P. Morgan and other banks, which she said was a much higher number than was initially on the table, but some questioned her influence over the deal. Others questioned why the former California AG did not persecute Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin for violating state foreclosure laws. Journalist Aaron Glantz wrote in a 2019 book, that Harris allowed Mnuchin's One West Bank at the time to illegally foreclose on tens of thousands of families and then tried to bury a, re- a report with the evidence. Alright, so that is the end of the article here. So, uh, you know, very interesting take. Now, um, make no mistake, folks, I 
so here's my take on Kamala Harris, you know, in brief. A lot of Democrats seem to think that Kamala Harris is the energy that the Biden campaign needs. And in a sense, they're right, because, I mean, let's face it, Joe Biden is, is old, he's, you know, he's been in politics forever, he's uninteresting, uh, you know, even the Democrats kind of have to admit that it's kind of looking like he has dementia and he doesn't really know where he is half the time, the gaps are unavoidable, he's just a fairly unlikable guy. Right? Even the Dems have to admit this. Uh, you know, Kamala Harris is a, you know, is a black, uh, you know, woman. She's articulate, much like Barack Obama is, as Ben Shapiro pointed out last year. You know, she has charisma and she has energy. So, you know, in a way, Kamala Harris is to Joe Biden what Sarah Palin was to John McCain in 2008, right? Uh, if you re if you remember back in 2008, and I certainly remember, remember because 2008 was really the first election that I followed, uh, you know, closely as a, uh, you know, student for an 8th grade civics class at the time. And, you know, back then... John McCain was just not very interesting. He he was kind of old and, uh, you know, fuddy-duddy uh, seeming. And Sarah Palin was really the energy that the party, you know, needed. So it was essentially, uh, you know, Hillary, or I, I would say, uh, you know, Sarah Palin was the big poll for the... Uh, you know, McCain campaign in 2008. Now, of course, we all know that turned out with, uh, you know, Barack Obama winning his first of two terms, you know, but still, uh, there's no doubt that Sarah Palin at the time had a major influence on, you know, the on the, on the Republican campaign, and she went on to be a, you know, to be the voice of the Republican Party for a number of years, really, you know, up until uh, Trump came in in 2015 and announced he was running for president. You know, uh, Palin was really kind of the de facto conservative, you know, voice at the time. And, you know, in all honesty, I kind of see uh, Kamala Harris as kind of the same way right now for the Democrats. The Democrats don't really have anyone uh, all that exciting right now. Uh, you know, I would argue that Harris herself really is too establishment for some people, you know, so that might be a, be a turnoff. But, um, you know, she's a lot better than Biden is on his own. Um... I think the fact that she's a woman and that she's an African-American certainly helps her out, you know, with the party's identity politics. There's no denying that. Um, you know, 
she is very tough in debates, and so I think that will, you know, objectively that will stack up well against, you know, Trump's, you know, no nonsense toughness. You know, even though Harris is in the VP seat, uh, I think that will come into play too. Um, it is interesting that, you know, she is a prosecutor because that seems to be the one area where Republicans are kind of thinking that, you know, that's the big chink in armor, is that she is a prosecutor. She's essentially a cop, which to a, a lot of the Black Lives Matter, you know, type folks out there on the left, that could be a big no-no. And also the fact that she has been in law enforcement for, you know, 25 years and, you know, has been in politics for that long, you know, too. More than that, probably now. But, um, you know, with that being said, she does have chinks in armor, folks. There's no doubt about that. But the, the Republicans, you know, seem to think that because she is an establishment politician and that because she has that, you know, chink of being, you know, a prosecutor in armor, they think that that will, I guess, somehow drive you know, the Democrats away. Um, and I think a lot of people are, uh, at least on the, on the Republican side, are kind of underestimating her. Uh, she definitely has the qualities that Joe Biden doesn't. And I think the way people are looking at Kamala Harris on both sides of the aisle, whether you like her or hate, or hate her. The thing with Kamala Harris, objectively, is that we may be looking at the nice president as the next, not only vice president of the United States, but with the way things are going with Biden, we may be looking at the next president of the United States, right? And so... There is huge anti-Trump sentiment right now in the Democrat Party. You know, according to, to the Democrats, he's a white, you know, cis male who's racist. And, you know, he's a billionaire. He comes from a wealthy family. You know, he's, he's literally Hitler in some of these people in some of these people, people's eyes, and, you know, Kamala Harris, well, she came from a, you know, from a poor black, you know, family of immigrants in California, she's had to, you know, work her ass off, um, you know, she is a prosecutor, but she's, you know, black, so that, you know, helps, and, you know, plus, even if they don't, even if the Dems don't like her, there is that attitude of, well, she's better than Trump, right? The Dems are taking the, the Dems are taking the never Trump approach, similarly to how conservatives, even if they didn't like, you know, Trump as, as our guy, right? A lot of us voted for him over, you know, Hillary because they saw, you know, Trump as the lesser of two evils, right? 
And I think a lot of Democrats, even if they don't like Kamala Harris, I think we're kind of in the same boat. They're going to see Kamala Harris as the lesser of two evils. So my advice to you know Republicans is do not sleep on Kamala Harris. Don't be doing a victory lap already, as I've seen some of my you know fellow conservatives and you know conservatarians doing on on Twitter because the election for Trump is not in the bag yet. We still have until November fourth. That might not seem like you know a long way away since you know it's only a couple months, but in reality, that is still enough time for you know for major shifts to happen. We still have coronavirus to deal with. Uh, you know, which obviously that is not Trump's fault, but the media, the mainstream media, which is supporting, you know, Biden and Harris, they might not have come out and said that, you know, coronavirus is Trump's fault, but it has basically been implied. So there's a lot of anger against, you know, Trump from the Dems in that respect. I mean, Trump is the incumbent you know, president, and like or not, that is always a hurdle to to climb over. So, this election is going to be very interesting no matter what. And with Harris in the mix, I would not discount, you know, Biden and Harris quite yet. Republicans need to take this seriously if they want to win in November. Okay? So, that's my take on Kamala Harris and that whole thing. Um, You know, as things progress in the election, I'm sure, um, you know, we'll have more to talk about. But for now, that's just, those are just kind of my first thoughts on Kamala Harris. Now, shifting over to what, uh, you know, to COVID and... uh, you know, to my friend, uh, you know, Ray, who hosts I Am the Empire. First off, kind of plugging Ray's podcast. And he's not paying me to do this or anything. This is just me supporting a podcast, I really like. So Ray, and some of you guys have heard me mention him before, he posts Ion 2020. Uh, he and I connected through the Anchor Podcast uh, group on Facebook, and uh, I've been listening to his podcast uh, probably since around this time last year, actually. Um, so I'm not sure exactly when he started, but like I've been pretty close to a regular listener. Of his podcast, and he's he's more I want to call him a strict libertarian, but he definitely identifies politically as more of a strict libertarian and less of a conservatarian like I do. Um, but his podcast, I on the twenty I on twenty twenty, is his tag is a look at the election from a uh, libertarian perspective, and really. Um, because this year has been so weird, it's kind of become like a look at 2020 through the eyes of a libertarian perspective. And as I've mentioned before, what I like about Ray is, 
you know, usually with most, most libertarian podcasts out there, and real with any, you know, political podcast, whether, you know, whether it be a conservative podcast or a liberal podcast, you know, they all kind of expect you to already be kind of indoctrinated and be familiar with, you know, like party, you know, policy and party terms. But, but because of, you know, because of the way Ray approaches libertarianism, I almost call it like libertarianism for dummies is how I would approach his podcast. Um, you know, like I, I certainly understand libertarian principles uh, more, but, you know, like I said, I'm more of like a, a conservative, you know, leaning libertarian. So I'm not really familiar with all of the minutia of what, you know, libertarianism is. So he breaks things down and he breaks down libertarian arguments in a way that really the average everyday person can really understand, right? Because some of the libertarians are really, you know, far out there and they're so boggled down in their minutia, you know, and this is a criticism of any politico, I guess, anyone on the aisle on the aisle, but he really tries to explain, you know, what libertarianism is from a great perspective, so I highly recommend that you uh, check him out, uh, but he recently, on his latest episode, and this is why I wanted to talk about this, he recently uh, talked about how he uh, came down with a cold uh, this past weekend, and was needing to get a uh, COVID test because, you know, he wanted to to get tested to see if he had COVID, and thank goodness he didn't. But he described how uh, arduous the process was of just even, you know, trying to, to find a, uh, you know, a doctor that, you know, could get the that could get the test and, uh, you know, take it within, like, a reasonable amount of time and whatnot, and, uh, you know, all this stuff, and, uh, you know, I'm not going to try and summarize his, his entire story, so I'll link, you know, the episode, I'll link his episode uh, where he talks about that in the description of this podcast, but one thing that, you know, he, he talks about a lot in this episode and that he's talked a lot about a lot before in this podcast regarding coronavirus and something that I kind of want to touch in is just how bureaucratic, right, this whole COVID thing has become and how overblown it's become to a certain extent to a certain extent, and how the numbers really aren't, you know, how the, how the figures really don't mean what they appear to mean, right? And this is something that I've talked a lot about, you know, regarding coronavirus this year, too, on this podcast, right? I'm kind of dealing with, like, a similar situation where uh, I'm heading back to school, I'm in my senior year of college, uh, you know, and uh, I'm going back, school starts 
on the 24th for me, so a uh, little in just over two weeks for me, I'll be heading back. Uh, I'm taking online classes, so really I'll be, I'll still be here at home, but I will be, uh, you know, I guess telecommuting to classes and, uh, you know, doing classes via Microsoft Teams or, you know, WebEx or, I think we're using Microsoft Teams, but we could be using WebEx. Uh, anyway, uh, but they are going to have the campus open. And in order for me to even be on campus, if I need to, I'm going to have to get tested for, you know, COVID every, you know, 14 days. And in fact, uh, they just sent out an announcement that, uh, you know, for any, for any student who is planning to, to come back to campus, even if it's just like only to use the study, uh, you know, uh, rooms or anything like that, or to use the cafeteria, we're going to have to get screened for, you know, COVID. So, you know, there's a, there's a long process with that. And even though the school is providing, um, you know, that for us, I mean, there's going to be a lot of students, you have to schedule appointments. Uh, and then I guess like, from what I've also read, at least my school, the University of South Florida, uh, they can also basically summon students to get correct, get tested for uh, COVID at random, right? So even if I never end up going to campus, you know, once this semester physically, because I said that I would like the option to still go back to campus, you know, they may call me and say, you have to come in for, you know, for a random COVID test because your student ID popped up in this uh, lotto or whatever, right? And to me, this seems really sketchy because the general consensus is, right, and even Fauci has talked about this, Really, people under 50 aren't at risk unless they have, you know, some compromised, uh, you know, immune system. So, you know, most college students really are not at risk, right? And even with me being in a, in, in a wheelchair and being wheelchair bound, my disability really doesn't have anything you know, to do with my, uh, you know, respiratory system or anything like, like that, uh, you know, more my ambulatory system for sure, but I'm not, I mean, I might be considered slightly more at risk for coronavirus than a lot of my, you know, peers, a lot of, uh, people in their 20s, but I'm still not in a major risk category, Right? And granted, I'm an older, you know, college student. I'm I'm mid twenties. Most college students are under, you know, are under twenty four, so they're not even in the coronavirus risk category, and neither are little kids. So it is weird to me that they're making us, you know, basically 
you know, take coronavirus tests at random. Oh, and then the other thing I love, and I've heard this from a bunch of other students too, uh, I guess every day, um, you know, at the start of every school day, Monday through Friday, uh, whether you plan to come to campus or not that day, you're going to have to uh, fill like a quick daily assessment survey, um, you know, like indicating like how you feel and what you're, you know, if you've been sick or anything like that, or if you've been under stress or anything like, like that. And I guess based on these, you know, like daily quick survey results, uh, that will indicate whether or not you can come on to campus for that day. And you'll either get like an approval check mark in the system or you'll get denied. And, uh, you know, I'm not really sure. They haven't really explained what happens if, if you get denied. I guess you can't come on to campus or, you know, you might get contacted. Uh, which will be very interesting because here's the thing. Uh, you know, colleges, college can be pretty stressful, like even if you're, you know, even if you're on top of your classes and whatnot, you know, it's stressful anyway for most students. I know certainly that's the case for me. So, you know, during finals and whatnot, you know, and during like, uh, you know, midterms, there's going to be a lot of students who get stressed out. So, because of that, is that going to be a COVID trigger, right? And if they make us stay in isolation, you know, for like, for 14 days, right? Presumably, if, you know, that were to occur for a student, uh, you know, what happens then? Like, how is your workload going to be affected? Will, you know, will students, you know, get like, you know, exemptions and time off to, you know, for personal health care reasons. How does that all work out? Um, it just seems like a major overreach to me that the school is, you know, doing this. And then I guess, you know, if you don't fill out the survey or whatnot, like if you just forget or something like that, which could always happen depending on, you know, maybe you have like an early morning class and online or you know, maybe you have, have a busy day and you just, you forget to fill out that survey. If, you know, for whatever reason you forget to fill out that survey, there will be consequences. And what are those consequences? Well, we don't know. But it seems pretty ominous to me that they're saying that there are severe consequences for quote-unquote violating, you know, or not falling the COVID rules for coming back to campus. Uh, you know, will a student get, get suspended and, you know, or expelled? Probably, probably not, but I don't like the idea that you could get suspended, you know, for, like, failing to abide by COVID rules for college campuses. Uh, there's just a lot of unknowns still with, uh, you know, COVID, and I've and I, you know, the big fear, the big fear of a lot of conservatives and a lot of libertarians, not just from, you know, the federal government, but from also 
you know, state and local, and, you know, these institutions like, you know, universities and, you know, whatnot, is that they can basically take away our, you know, rights and our civil liberties and, you know, our way of life and disrupt our, you know, living based off of this COVID fear. I mean, they already have to a certain extent with, you know, shutting down everything and, uh, you know, uh, margin. We've been on, you know, I wouldn't really say we're really on, like, official, official lockdown, but we still are, in a sense, on lockdown nationwide and internationally. And, um, you know, I mean, I guess Trump is doing all right with COVID, considering, uh, to be honest, I don't think he's doing like an amazing job. Uh, I think the fact he's doing executive orders out the wazoo instead of, you know, trying to get Congress in on things is really bad. Of course, I don't think Congress is doing all that well either on this. So it's a catch twenty two. But you know, really, what what irritates me is that you know COVID is being used as a political football. Uh, you know, I I worried that this was going to be the case, you know, back when this whole lockdown started in March, and uh, lo and behold, I was right, and I think that was a legit fear of a lot of people, and now we're starting to, you know, see that coming to, uh, you know, effect, so eventually, you know, if things don't turn around, if we don't end the lockdown soon, and I'm not trying to sound like an Alex Jones conspiracy theory guy, but I think you're going to see massive, you know, civil disobedience nationwide if this thing doesn't at least start to turn around during, uh, you know, during the holidays. And I'm also curious to see exactly how, you know, COVID will be uh, used as political football during the presidential election and during the debates more specifically because you know it's going to be used that way. You just know that's the case. Uh, you know, how specifically it's going to be used? Well, I can only theorize at that point, you know, that probably, you know, Biden and Harris will somehow, you know, make like a remark to make it seem like Trump, you know, either caused coronavirus or didn't do enough to prevent it, you know, quote-unquote or anything like that. And, uh, you know, it'll just be a mess. So, you know, I don't know really what to think on this whole thing other than that, you know, to my fellow college students who are kind of disgruntled about, you know, having to, uh, you know, go back to school during this time, I, you know, I hear you loud and clear, I'm with you, I feel your pain, I'm in the same boat with many of you, and, uh, you know, just keep your head down and, uh, you know, keep trucking forward if you are going back to school. I do know a bunch of college students who, uh, you know, who aren't going back to school. They've decided, you know what, I'm going to wait until January and see if things are open by then. Uh, you know, me, I'm close enough to graduating. Uh, I still have like a couple more semesters left, but I'm close enough to graduating to where I'm kind of like, well, I just need to push forward and, you know, get things moving. So, uh, you know, hopefully this semester will go well for me. Uh, I'm planning on making, you know, things happen to the best of my ability. 
on that front. And, you know, to my fellow students who are in the same boat, good luck to you. Um, you know, and to the rest of everyone else who is in the working place and maybe going back to work, maybe not. I continue to, uh, you know, wish you all good success, uh, too, with dealing with this thing. We are all in this together. We're all sharing the same frustrations, and I just urge you to stand strong. All right, folks, so that'll do it for today's podcast. Like I said, uh, you know, much shorter than the uh, Saturday live stream, but, you know, we got a good 40 minutes in roughly. So I appreciate you guys uh, tuning in to the podcast, and uh, I will be back for the uh, Saturday live stream show, uh, 10 p.m. Eastern on youtube.com forward slash the Whitfield Report and also dlivetv.com forward slash the Whitfield Report. Also on audio podcast on uh, you know Sundays. And uh, folks, I'll see you then. And until then, God bless. God save this great nation. God freedom legacy in that order. And I will see you on the next episode of the Whitfield Report.